All right, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of Are You a Robot? I am your host, Demetrios Brinkman, and this is a series where we aim to explore some of the most pertinent questions that arise from AI and related technologies. The way that we're doing that is by gathering some of the best and brightest minds in their respective fields and having them talk to me asking them questions about how they see the current state of affairs and seeing if we can find any best practices to move forward with. I will mention that if you enjoy this conversation, it doesn't stop here. You can jump into our Slack community where feel free to introduce yourself, make a fuss about what you've got going on and how you see the current state of affairs when it comes to AI and ethics and governance. It's really a cool place. We're an inviting bunch. So I encourage you, I implore you, jump in there. The last thing that I will mention is we have an incredible sponsor. Ethics Grade is still been there from the beginning. They're still sponsoring us. If you don't know about them, let me give you a quick update because there's some exciting stuff that they just released on their website. Now, Ethics Grade, for all those who have not heard me talk about them in a beautiful light before, is an ESG benchmarking firm or an ESG ratings company. And what that means is that they go through and they measure the impact that a company has non-financially on the world. So a non-financial impact that the company has on the world. Now, why is it special right now? What have they been up to? They just released their new cohort of data onto their website so you can go and you can check out what they've been doing. And if you want to compare the AI ethics of companies such as Twitter versus TikTok or Toyota versus Tesla or even Alibaba versus Amazon, you can find all that information on their website. So go check it out, ethicsgrade.io or click the link in the description below. That's all we got for today. Now let's jump into this incredible conversation, which actually for me, it felt like it got cut short. I might have to interview him again, but let's talk with Michael about what he's been up to and how he sees things. Are you a robot? So, hi, I'm Michael and um, I'm a quant, a recovering quant, perhaps a practicing quant, a bit of both. Um, so I have a background, I have a PhD in finance, I've worked a lot of my career in asset management from a range of different places, from BlackRock to Fidelity to Renaissance Capital to uh, AXA to uh, asset owners as well at HESTA. I suppose uh, for all my sins, I, I've run a career in quantitative asset management. I've typically managed research teams and research uh, funds. Um, uh, but more recently, as I suppose AI and big data and alternative data kind of became fashionable, I became very much a speaker in this field. Uh, it's another kind of form of reinvention of kind of quantitative sciences in finance. Um, we moved to Australia about three years ago, and that kind of changed as well, a, a lot of the roles and, and the kinds of, my, I suppose, the trajectory of my career. But also, I think over the course of my career, I really became convinced that there are two major themes that are happening in the world. One is climate change, and one is the adoption of AI by society. And um, had, had a hard conversation with myself at 40 and said, do you really want to be part of this conversation? Or do you want to start, stand on the sidelines? Mm. And uh, I decided that I wanted to really be part of this conversation. I thought it was a really big deal. It was a generational shift. And uh, I would be really annoyed at myself if it came and went and I, and I wasn't involved in it. So, so I, I literally left. I, I walked out of my job in, in a very nice, friendly way, but nonetheless. Um, and, uh, you know, basically did a hard pivot in my career toward AI and the applications of AI in society to things like ethics in AI, bias in AI. Um, did a lot of readings, a lot of talking around the subject as well and, and joined the company that basically uh, quantifies the impact of automation on the workforce for different countries and different industries. So really big, it's kind of societal impacts kind of th stuff. Um, so yeah, here I am. Amazing. What was it that made you think like, hey, climate change and AR are AI are the main factors right now? This is the questions of our time. So it's interesting because in what I've realized 
leaving financial services or kind of stepping back from financial services is that it's a very unique industry in the sense that it's constantly in the future. It's constantly thinking about what's coming next, what's coming next, what's coming next. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty good at understanding big thematic drivers of societies and economies because it has to be because these things go into prices very well. So we are kind of inundated with very detailed and thoughtful analysis that talks about big societal shifts and themes that are going to be coming up and going to be impacting the world. And certainly technology adoption, the fourth industrial revolution, the potential for AI was something that's been on the plate for a while. But unlike, let's say, the consultancy stories, which say, look, dear company, you have to do a lot here. um, We kind of thought about it very much in, in investment terms, in terms of the shift of capital, of, of these companies coming in and being very competitive and changing the landscape and so on. Mm-hmm. So that always felt like it was a kind of a, the Amazons of this world were warning shots of what's to come. They were just the kind of the first first of many to to arrive. And then I think with, with climate change, um, that's also been a, a theme that's been in the background for some time, but it's probably gained a lot of acceptance because um, at least I think what happened is that the average age of people in finance actually increased. We had a lot more people in their 30s and 40s who had children, who had families, who were a lot more rounded about understanding the world. And they started really thinking about what is all this capital, these billions and billions of dollars actually doing, what it, what it could be doing. And then you saw significant allocations of capital by large asset owners, and, and now even BlackRock coming out and talking about this mm-hmm. as, a, as a theme in terms of responsible and, and sustainable capitalism as, as they're turning it. Um, this idea that we can't just make returns Right, that money doesn't help you if you know the planet's burning, and yeah. um, you know the, there's always been an understanding of this, but usually it's been um, let's say sidelined under the course of hey, we're capitalists, we're here to make money, we're not here to change the world. I think it's interesting that the, as the generational shift continues, the people taking the reins here have a much more rounded consideration as to what the future might look like. So these two themes are kind of coming through. And then I think the final point is just quantitatively, we had a lot more data about climate change and about the impact of AI. I mean, we were talking about 10-year themes in investment management. Over the last 10 years, we've seen incredibly shifts in, in the average temperatures. These temperatures are markedly different, statistically meaningfully different. Yes, our, our sample size is small. We don't have 10,000, 50,000 years of data. Um, but we have enough to say that, that within our lifetime, these are meaningful changes. We see physical changes. Um, and then with AI, you know, with the last 10 years, we've seen massive adoption of things like NLP. I mean, yeah. it's crazy to say it out loud, but 10 years ago, since 10 years, over the last 10 years, we have solved language. Huh. Uh, I remember being in 2014 with all the hedge funds hiring linguists to go and train the NLP algorithms because they were trying to work out how they were going to systemize language translation, interpretation, sentiment analysis, and so on. But six years later, no one's hiring linguists because it's no. done. <laughs> We've got enough chatbots to figure out that problem. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's, but to the level that we can now translate languages between European languages better than humans can. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a Tower of Babel kind of moment, right? That's, a, that's, a, that's an enormous humanity-level accomplishment. Uh, it's all happened in the last 10 years. Yeah, it's fascinating to think too, like the headspace that people were in just six years ago thinking we need a linguist to solve this problem. And now you do not think about that at all when you think, all right, let's figure out how to conquer language, which is kind of the go-to, okay, well, we would get a linguist because they're specialized in this, but now it is, uh, let's get a chatbot or let's get an NLP expert and let's figure out how to do it that way. And, and I think I think those organizations that were quick to this space, so Google, OpenA, OpenAI, and others, just took advantage of incredible advances in methodologies in in in, uh, in computing power, but most of all in data sets that they had absolute advantage over. And rather than cornering it, never sharing it with anybody, they basically made it available as SaaS products that you subscribe to. Mm-hmm. So today, for example, if you wanted, wanted to subscribe this podcast that you and I are having. We would just punch it through a readily available algorithm that we can rent off any of these cloud-based suppliers. And every one of our words would be to a very high degree of percent probability uh, written down yeah. accurately. Yeah. And there's so many of them too. Like knowing, because I have looked at these different providers, there are 
a plethora of different companies that are offering this and they're all doing it well, like you said. And so it is, it is quite a feat that sometimes we don't step back and say, whoa, look at how far we've come in just such a short amount of time. So that, along with your constant like vision towards the future, brings me to the next question. And what are you looking at in the next, let's say, five years, 10 years, and then even potentially 30 years as AI is concerned and how it's going to be affecting our, our lives? Um, I mean, they're huge questions and I think they kind of touch on so many different things. Um, I have a sense that we, we've kind of gone through the Woodstock era of AI research, like the free love. So we all kind of sat out there, shared our code, uh, you know, enjoyed the, the fruits of the labor, the common labor. And we really enjoyed that. And, and in the same way that the early years of the internet were these beautiful sense of community and openness and so it's on. It's going to change the world. Yeah. Exactly. And it, and it did and it does and all that kind of stuff is all true. Um, but we're now getting onto the uh, the sort of sharp end of, of this sort of process, which is much more institutionalization and corporatization and so on, which basically means that we start to understand how some of the, let's say, um, unintended consequences of the adoption of technology has has impacted us, whether that's us being manipulated by social media, or whether that's us um, being uh, uh, at the end of, uh, of algorithms that characterize us in terms of risks for insurance contracts or mm-hmm. products or for criminal act- potential criminal activities and so on. These kinds of algorithms that come through the back- background and have been kind of enablements, but I think we're going to have a bit of an introspective period for the next period of time. I mean, I, I see that a lot of automation technologies are going to find their way into industry post-COVID. We're going to see, as usual, economic forces driving the likelihood of adoption. So it's not only just technology that drives these things. I think if you have the ability to automate something, but it takes effort to do so, but there is some cost saving, you're going to care about that cost saving a lot more in times of recessions. And so I think, you know, the automation technologies that are coming through that already here from a research and development will be significantly rolled out. And then I think, sadly, one of the areas that I get, not sadly, I think realistically, that I get very interested in is defense. And, you know, there's in, incredible advancements that we are kind of hearing about secondhand from um, all of the, uh, the military investment and the applications of AI. And I think there's, this is kind of undeniable. And, and, it's, and it's, of course, it's, it's a system that has to absorb the most recent technologies and adopt them. I see, I, I think, if I'm reading between the lines correctly, I still think there's a little bit of a cultural shift that needs to happen for a traditional military to dispose of its soldier and as a base unit uh, or, or a ship or something like that. But I think systems like drones, autonomous vehicles, autonomous control mechanisms, remote assassinations, things that we've seen to some extent in the past, but now kind of raise really interesting questions about who's responsible, who pulls the trigger, what happens, et cetera, uh-huh. are coming much more to the front. And, and I think, you know, you only have to look at Atlas uh, from uh, Boston Dynamics to think that's a really cool robot. Gee, it looks kind of familiar. <laughs> like, I think I've seen a few movies on this one. Um, and and that's, that's not an efficient, let me be very clear about that. That may be a highly inefficient way of waging war. That's just us replicating ourselves. It's like saying, I want to fly, so I'm going to look at a bird and I'm going to build a bird out of wooden sticks. Mm. And you're going to go, that's, that's really interesting, Mike, but how about we just make a rocket? Yeah. And the rocket just goes up and then comes down and just, you know, it flies from A to B, but doesn't have to flap its wings. So I think we, there's a lot of room to rethink, structurally rethink what warfare and what, um, I suppose, defense and, and information and, and all of these things um, mean. And there is going to be, I think, a, a, a sort of a competition to take over space and to take over um, what information is shared or distributed through space. And, mm. and a lot of the automations, I suppose, automations and information gathering exercises are going to take a um, slightly more, um, I suppose, a geopolitical element to them, uh, even more so than they are today. So yeah, that, that's from the micro to the macro, right? So I think we'll have economic impacts in terms of automation. We'll have big impacts. I think overall, I'm, I remain very optimistic. I think the accomplishments we have are incredible. I think we're going to have incredible advances in in um, 
companionship uh, technologies. I think we're going to be advances in in biotech. I mean, the stuff that we're seeing with protein folding and hmm. and other things are, are just just incredible. And and they're they're the kinds of things that make you think that um, there are some real structural changes that could be coming around the corner to human biology, uh, wow. such as brain augmentation, things like that as well. So fascinating time, but it's it's it it is like kids in a candy store, right? So there's so much candy potentially in this store. And I think we're all kind of looking at each other thinking, how do we do this in such a way that we retain an equitable society, that we retain a society that is, um, you know, helping people be positive about the future. Whereas what we're actually observing in, in the world is that wealthy first world countries are deeply unhappy. Populations of wealthy first world countries are deeply unhappy about what they seem to think they should want and demonstrations of that are in Brexit and in other fields as well, where people feel left yeah. behind by the system and not empowered. Um, so even though I don't think AI is a natural part of that question, I think it influences the way that AI is uh, you know, rolled out and, and put into society. Yeah, and it's such good points that you're making here on like this military side of things and how AI is being used in the military potentially. And and again, like you said, it wasn't exactly this, but it made me think, well, if we're looking at a bird and we just try and put some wings on ourselves and think, well, now we can fly, then we're not going to have the best way of going about it. And it goes, it parallels with, hey, if we're looking at warfare and we're trying to use robots for that, that's not the best way. And I almost would argue that now the warfares are being fought online, right? Like you look at what is happening with the misinformation campaigns that are going out and the ways that uh, you saw Russia, Russia meddling with the US's elections. That's a bit of the new age warfare in my mind. You don't have boots on the ground, but you still have things being tainted with for the to try and create like detrimental situations. And so those, those are, are really interesting to think about. Like, but you said you were reading between the lines and seeing, well, we can't just retire all of the soldiers yet. You don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Are there, uh, I just want to dive into that a little bit more before we move on to the other points you made. Like, are, do you feel like that is a case that, it will some, at some point be retired, or is there always going to be this fleet, uh, especially for the nations like the U.S., where you have gigantic fleets and it's part of our culture, it's part of our identity? So it's a great question. Let me on, answer it through analogy. So when I was kind of going through university, um, I was coming out into the job market in the early 2000s. And as a finance student, as a, as a student of finance, the dream was to go and join an investment bank or a trading desk or something like that. That was the big money tickets. And UBS Bank at the time was had this amazing advertising campaign that all of us graduates were salivating over where this massive room full of trading desks, desks, desks upon desks upon desks and the chaos and the buzz and the energy and the humanity and the people picking up phones and selling and buying and shouting and suits and cufflings and money and, you know, just everything. And you were like, wow, I'm 22 and I want to be there. I just want to, wherever it is, get me there. I don't care if I'm serving coffee. I just want to get there, Right. And there's this classic picture that's been shared about the same room um, in like five or 10 years later when about 80% of the desks are empty and 20% of the desks are in the corner. And while UBS certainly went through its shares of regulatory issues and so on, it, it was really not that that drove, I think, that, that trading floor decline or certainly not the symbolism. It was automation. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and... While every one of those traders that are no longer there will tell you that a machine can't do what they do because it can't shout and can't pick up the phone and can't say those words and whatever, the answer is it didn't need to because if it can do 80% of what you do at 10% of the price, then you're done. Mm. And I think as soon as you have financial pressure on systems and you have an alternative substitute service or good or whatever that is not exactly the same, but does most of it kind of it's supposed to do, then a lot of these superfluous things start to go away. Another quick analogy is, and I really will answer your question after that, I promise, is um, about tailors and shirts. And so 
back in the uh, pre-industrial age, whatever, we used to have tailors in local markets. And my shirt was my, made by my tailor. And I talk about how Jimmy knows just my height and my size. And he's been doing all the, the men in my family for generations. And Jimmy's great. And you might say the same about your tailor. Um, along comes a gap and suddenly we uh, made, made t-shirts, right? So t-shirts are not Jimmy and they don't know me and so on, but they cost a tenth of the price. So what we've moved on to is when 90% of the, the clothing is made by Gap and 10% is still Jimmy doing some stuff here and there for special occasions. And again, what happened here is that we've commoditized and streamlined the most effective part of a clothing, aka a piece of material between you and thin air. <clears throat> and we have put this into a kind of a streamlined, scalable solution. And it turns out that all these other emotive, you know, cultural contexts of what we thought mattered start to float away and we're replaced by the core need of something to protect us from wind or whatever. Hmm. And I think if you look at military, military is this beautiful traditions and this phenomenal history and it's just a, an amazing engine that hangs together systematically, pulls together thousands upon thousands of people and processes and whatever in a very systematic way. If, if you were to run a company in this context, you'd be, you'd be super impressed. With with the with number of several kind of core objectives, and I think those core objectives are um, have been prescribed in the past to be achieved a certain way. So whether it's counter information, whether it's intelligence, whether it's about understanding your opponents and enemies and capabilities and so on, um, I think all of these military units have increasingly obviously understood that warfare has moved to information to cyber and so on. So yeah. they all have incredible capabilities underneath the hood to understand, protect and to wage war in these systems. Um, and I think it's really only a matter of time until more traditional means are substituted, probably through cost savings exercises where 10 destroyers are substituted by three of these kinds of destroyers. I think we have autonomous ships already in the, in the Navy, um, not just information gathering ones, but actually um, others as well. So I, I have a sense that there is a kind of, I suppose, a strategic path um, that, that one can take. One says, for a certain number of dollars, how do I achieve those goals in the best way possible? Versus a much more, what is the culture? What does it represent for me? And I guess with the shirts analogy, um, my point would be that we still have a symbolic warship that has a flag and people and soldiers and saluting, yeah. but it will be 10% of the, your deployable capability yeah. or, or, or such. It'll be the, the tailor so to speak, mm -hmm. um, just the same way when you see the Chinese or Russian troops marching with, in perfect lockstep formation that doesn't tell you anything about the capability of those countries mm. to uh, you know, uh, do cyber attacks or anything like that. You don't, you don't see the cyber analysts marching, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So talking about like your big picture again and looking at this idea of automation and how it's going to be affecting us and how it already is affecting us. What are the areas that you feel like are going to be hit the hardest? I know that we hear so much talk, right? About like, oh, uh, trucking is going to be killed because of autonomous vehicles and like uh, Ubers and taxis. Those are all out the door. What are other areas that you feel are just going to maybe not be wiped out, but really hit the hardest and uh, feel the, the automation and artificial intelligence? So it, it's, a, it's a really interesting point because I think most people will answer that question based upon what is possible. So they'll say to you things like autonomous driving. They'll say, look, we, we've managed to drive a car down the road without a, uh, a driver, so therefore it's coming and therefore truck drivers are going and so on. Um, and that I think misses the entire ecosystem of the economy and the regulatory framework that that sits in. Mm. And it misses the idea that as it injects into our economy, it has to go through all these layers and gaps and so on for it to come out the other end and, and be implemented. Um, and it misses the idea that in the case of driving and drivers, you just there's a lot of regulatory overhead and uh, systematic and governments and so on that are in the way. There's a lot of unions and, and so on. Um, that are in the way of that. I think, uh, so my, my sense is, and certainly a fathom, what we would do is we, we certainly quantify the possible impact of technology, but then we make a, what we could term as an adoption curve, which talks about 
the rate at which industries and countries will take on those technologies to make oh, those modifications. And typically the rate of adoption is not only a function of availability of technology, but it's also about um, the incentive <clears throat> to do so. So do you have incentives to cut costs and reduce and so on? Well, in capitalism, you said, of course I do. But if the answer is everyone's making money, then it's much less incentive. If the answer is you're fighting for your life, then yeah, you'll do whatever it takes and you'll make those automations and changes mm -hmm. and so on. I, I think with lots of other things, we see that the, the most readily um, automatable tasks and jobs relate to information gathering and processing. They relate to anything that is to do with computers and or, you know, exist you already in an information system and now AI is very natural um, I suppose, companion, partner, co-worker, whatever you want to call it, that sits there helping you to do that, either by relieving, making you much, much more efficient. So now there's not four people needed, but only two. Um, so that's more about not people displaced, but people not being required. So with two people, you can generate the economic growth you need to, as opposed to what you had with four people, versus um, actually having four people in a factory and saying to them, okay, listen, we only need two of you. I'm sorry, two are, two are going to go. Mm -hmm. Um I think the technology impacts, the way to think about this is they're gradual and they're slow. They're half a basis, half a percent, percent for different kinds of workforces over many, many years, year by year by year by year. They add up, certainly. But as you're going through, it's a, it's not, it, it's a series of gradual incremental improvements. Whereas what we see actually is economics or economically, you see massive waves. So you and I might observe, oh my goodness, we have this recession coming out of COVID. This is terrible. All these people have lost their jobs. How are they going to get back? Oh, we've got a boom. Great. Everyone's needed. Oh, we've got a bust again. So you and I might actually observe the wave going up and down on our boats as we're going there, but we may not observe that the whole ocean is slowly you know, declining as an example in the analogy. Mm -hmm. So technology, I think, is, is more of that. Even though people would like to see it uh, expressed as a kind of a, an explosion, like, oh my God, we're going to lose 50,000 workers, bang. I, I really see it more as a gradual series of small incremental shifts where you and I go to the supermarket and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I haven't seen a check. There's like three checkout people, but it's all electronic. Yeah, And we now take that for granted, right? We're like, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's been happening for years and years and years. There wasn't a boom. We didn't go from 20 checkout people to zero. We went from 10, 20 to 15 to 12 and that's six yeah. and now we're just okay with five and i think it's it's that type of thing that we're going to see um and i think the second part to notice is that for those types of jobs and tasks where um there's a functional output so i'm making a cupcake for you okay so that you might say that that's a cupcake that i'm making for you so it's well defined if i can do it quicker faster i'll, I'll take the technology route if it's a competitive market so, for example, in trading and, and financial markets, but others as well, it, if there's a zero-sum game, there's always somebody who wants to try something new, something else, whatever. So you always have firms coming out with new technologies, new ideas, employing new people to try to beat the other and beat the other and so on. And so in those situations, you, you don't necessarily have this case, what I described, where you have a trading desk that goes from 100 people to 20 people because, hey, we've solved trading. But you have maybe 100 people splitting up into teams of five people or 20 constantly competing with each other, uh -huh. but there's still a hundred people employed, but they are competing with each other for the same outcomes. Yeah. Well, it makes total sense on this idea of the slow decline of the workforce. And when you even look at it now in the supermarket example, I just was thinking about how it's gone from always having a cashier to now like you have self checkout, and then later on, you'll have the like what Amazon's doing right now, where you just go in, you put in your cart, it scans it, you walk out with it, it charges you. And there's a few people there just making sure that there's no glitches, right? So it, it's very good point, the, the slow draining of the ocean, we could say. And I see that as, a, uh, as an interesting way of looking at it. Now, I wanted to ask about like this idea of the the constant argument that you hear people talk about, right? Is we're going to lose jobs, but new jobs will be made. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. So I, I um, it's it's a really interesting thing. So I, I was at an intelligence squared debates in London about four years ago. And there was two panels, there was two sets of panels, three and three. 
it's broadcast on UK TV, and it was about the, the robots are coming for our jobs, right? Mm-hmm. And so three people on one side of the debate were talking about, um, you know, uh, don't worry, uh, economics um, prevail will prevail, which basically means that there will be new jobs, there'll be new competitions, there'll be new kinds of firms. We're gonna, you know, get rid of this. We're gonna call it something else. And essentially, you've only you've only ever seen human the human race reinvent itself to be competitive and to to kind of call different professions different things and go up. And I think that's that's correct. So I think I think I can see that. There was a really good compelling argument that was made on the other side, which said, um, actually, this is a bit like the industrial revolution, but different. In the industrial revolution, you replaced physical muscle with mechanical muscle, and so you kind of said, okay. Um, and you moved a bunch of people by, into white office workers. So it didn't really matter what they did or knew. They were really glad that they didn't have to do backbreaking labor all the time. Yeah. And so that was great for them. Um, but in this case, what we're doing is we're automating a layer of intelligence. And actually, we have difficulty moving people into higher intelligence jobs. So you can't move a large percentage of the population to, if you measure this by IQ, 120 IQ plus positions. Um, because by definition, they're, they're sitting at the 90 to 120 level. Um, and so you kind of, you, you don't have the place to put them essentially. And so I think it's, a, it's an interesting point because it, it also begs a different kind of question, which is around manufacturing and production versus services. Uh-huh. So manufacturing production, we can say we can make plenty of food, we can make plenty of raw, raw things for us to consume, using you know technology and robots and so on. So absolutely, we don't need many people in that space. Um, and we can do it very cheaply, so we're actually kind of doing it now locally. We're not, not requiring transport and so on. With services, you can kind of make this argument that we can continue to service each other in various different formats and ways through professional services and other things. So long as there's people with money, there will be a flow of services going between people. Mm-hmm. So I can certainly see arguments where we say, all right, First of all, there'll be technology impacts, so a bunch of robots doing the base stuff, delivering electricity, food, uh, gas, utility, retail, shopping, whatever, delivery systems. We'll have a layer of newly created technology jobs who just support those. So AI engineers, AI robots, maintenance, and so on. By definition, that quantity of jobs should never be the same amount that's been displaced if it was done by humans. So if you needed 100 people to do it, now you're going to use a machine and 10 people. That's fine, yeah, exactly. but he's not going to get back to 100, right? So you're going to miss those 90. So the question then becomes, if you did nothing else but that, then there'll be a big sway of society that would have less income to so the 90 people. They would go into universal basic income or some other form of, uh, of help, social assistance and so on. If they did that, then um, you wouldn't have the income being generated to service this newly upcoming service sector. Uh-huh. So you actually kind of need to give them more money so that this new service sector can begin so that people can create their own jobs and, and feedback and so on. And so I think the concern is really about the speed of adoption. It's not about the actual idea that we're going to be transitioning from production to services. It's the idea that if we do it too fast, you have dislocated parts of the workforce that are not just unemployed, but unemployable. If you're not able to retrain them or advance them or, or even strategically start to retrain them today, with a view of what the future might look like, then this part of the workforce basically steps out of the workforce. Your participation rate in economic terms goes down. And if that happens, then that critical mass of individuals not only has less disposable income, so therefore buys less services and doesn't create those other jobs that could be created, but they also create a whole bunch of socioeconomic problems, maybe even political problems. The, they, they feel dispossessed. They vote for um, parties that uh, play into those fears and anxieties. They... Um, create difficult social circumstances for um, their surroundings and so on. Yeah, they have protests, they have riots, they do all of that. Yeah, or just they just feel like, or, or you know, this, the re- I was in I was in the UK in Brexit, right? And you're you're like you were mentioning that you're presently in Germany. Yeah, um, and it's funny because um, so I'm I have a Hungarian background, and so I'm I consider myself to be European, and I lived in the UK for a very long time. And it was funny because that moment in Brexit, that uh, I felt extremely sad when I was there and the vote went through for Brexit because in London, you would never have thought that that would vote would go through. Everybody was just convinced that European Union was a fantastic idea. We're Europeans, we're all together, we're all cultured people, economically, politically, and so on. But the rest of the UK felt like they were completely 
dispossessed. The system was not working for them. Mm. And they had been left behind. They had been left behind. And therefore, they made a decision that said, you know what, we'd rather burn it down. We'd yeah. rather burn it down. Um, and the rest of us, we just look at each other, what, what just happened? Like, this was a good thing, guys. What, what, how did we do this? Um, and so kind of, I suppose it was a really good testing ground for me that if we don't fix this idea of AI adoption in our society or make sure that it's equally shared or that it provides hope or thoughtfulness or careful thoughtfulness or, or just inspiration for humans rather than anxiety, then we're going to end up in a place where a large percentage of the population is just feeling dispossessed. And because we have democracy, they will vote for outcomes that are going to be quite scary. Yeah, and they're detrimental in the long run. And that's, I mean, that feels to me more like a marketing problem, right? Than an actual uh, realistic thing. It's like trying to get people to see that there is some benefit in this and it's not all of the iRobot coming for your jobs is more of something that is coming from the, the public's opinion and the way that they see it. So I know we're kind of coming to the end. I, I think I heard a little bell ring. So you probably have a meeting after this that I want to be conscientious of. And I want to ask you about the role of like ESG and AI ethics and how you feel those two play out together. So like I, um, I've been working in the ESG space, I suppose, for a long time in asset management. Um, obviously, E stands for environment, S for social, G for governance. Governance has been around for a long time. People have understood that companies need good governance processes. Data on environmental effects have probably become available in the last five or 10 years, and they relate to carbon emissions, water usage, all of these different footprints that are on the natural environment that companies made. The social impact has really not been well understood of how companies operate, other than saying, you know, do you provide a healthy or a safe environment for your um employees to work in. Mm -hmm. So outside of that, there's not really a deep understanding of, of uh, what are the social implications. What I find fascinating is that um, we've been talking a little bit about uh, this notion of responsible automation um, to local asset owners and to some of the international asset owners. And there's a very deep awareness that if automation is coming, and this is a theme that people believe in and understand, then we really haven't prepared ourselves in a investment framework on how to measure that or how to prepare ourselves for that. So for example, how do I even define what a responsible series of steps a company can take to ensure that their workers are not dislocated, they're not feeling uh, essentially they're being removed from the workforce or kind of made redundant, but permanently redundant. And in fact, we like technology adoption, so we don't try to be Luddites. We, companies have to adopt technologies, they have to be more efficient. These are all good things. But they have to be aware, just like with carbon emissions, that there's, a, there's an externality to that step in the case of automation. And if that externality becomes critical, then like climate change, we have a potential dislocation society level effects. And so therefore, I think for asset owners, especially like universal asset owners, what we've been advocating is, this, first of all, this idea that uh, a workforce is a universal asset. So if you, for example, an asset owner or you're a superannuation fund and you want to say uh, you're investing in stocks or companies, you're deriving those long-term returns from the workforce, from people working in that economy to make those companies more profitable. And therefore, you draw from that well. And if that well is problematic or poisoned or some problem, then you're going to be problematic as well. As soon as you establish that step, you then set a path for ESG to say, all right, in order for us to derive long-term good returns, we must have good workforces. To have good workforces, we have to measure the impact of companies on the workforce, generally and specifically. So therefore, we need companies to start disclosing information about who works in these workforces. Because today, if you ask the company, for example, uh, something about their workforce, they would tell you probably three things. First of all, they would say they're extremely important. We love our workforce. We train them. We take care of them. Ergonomic tests. Fantastic, right? Awesome. <laughs> Number two, where does it appear in your balance sheet? Where is the asset line item? Where is the cash flow line item that pertains to how much you love your workers? And the answer is, it's a cash flow item, but it's a negative. It's called a cost of goods, and it's a, it's a, it's a line item that you want to minimize. So it, it's a cost to your business. Okay, great. So that's not ideal. That's an accounting issue, but the fact that you haven't really been able to capture the value system of this. And number three, just who are your workers? 
other than your CEO and your board of directors who appear in beautiful suits on the website, can you tell me anything else about the 50,000 people that you have employed in those 15 different locations at different, different levels of positions? Can you tell me about the technology systems that you're running presently to either augment or automate those people in those different places? Can you tell me about the training programs and what you're doing for them, et cetera, et cetera? So this is not about you stopping doing this stuff because it's bad. It's not bad at all, but it's about you displaying this information because you care about your impact on the workforce and you essentially want to be a good citizen, a corporate citizen around these topics. And I think that is the S part of the ESG. That's a societal or social impact the S, the ESG. And it's an, really an area that I think we've so far talked a bit about gender, diversity. We've talked about equal rights and, and all that's kind of really good stuff. Um, but we haven't really talked about these more subtle effects that we, we know are coming uh, in the pipeline. Frustratingly, we all kind of have a feeling that it's coming, uh, but we haven't really been able to quantify yet and put into portfolios. And you don't feel like the S could also be like the societal impact that the company is having on the world, we could say, or the potential downfalls that it's creating. Like I, I think about our friends at Facebook and their S would be like in the negative score right now, right? Well, it, it, but it, it's a great question because it's, um, it, it's a really tough one. So, I mean, manufacturers of weapons and weaponry or parts for weaponry uh, or uh, people who give loans to companies who manufacture parts for weaponry mm-hmm. are everywhere. Um, now you can reasonably exclude companies that have a direct uh, weaponry. I make a gun, here it is kind of moment. And a lot of asset owners will exclude those from portfolios and there'll be kind of like tobacco kind of left out. Yeah. But as soon as you start walking down the um, supply chain, you, you discover capitalism's dirty little secrets, mm. which is that we're all in this business. Um, many, many different financial institutions directly and indirectly, many, many different suppliers directly or indirectly, and so on and so on. So it's, it's actually, practically speaking, it becomes really challenging um, to do that exercise. And then I think the second point I'd make is that what we also have to be very aware of is that um, liberalism can conflict with personal freedoms at some point, even though it seeks to promote those freedoms in, in the first instance. Um, and that basically means that um, when I, for example, go to Japan and I say, this is good governance, you should have women on your board. You should have equal amounts of women on your board. You should have this and this on your board. What I'm really doing is imposing my social system values on, on their system. And I'm saying, this is how you should behave. And of course, Japan, like any other sovereign nation, can just tell me to go get lost because mm-hmm. that's just not how they want to do it or, how you know, that's their decisions as, as to how they treat culture and that's the citizens are brought into that and so on. I think in the same kind of way, when you start thinking about what is the societal impact of something like Facebook, there are systematic scarinesses about Facebook. There's also a lot of systematic benefits of Facebook that we have already started, started for taking for granted. Yeah. Uh, we've received a lot of free services from Google, from emails to photo storage to whatever. Searching, um, yeah. And I say free, I mean free in monetary terms, not free in data terms or time or anything like that. Um, and I think it's it's a really it's a really tough one. Whereby, for example, did you see that um, the the Netflix documentary that they had about the impact of, of Facebook and and these other social yeah. media companies? Yeah. And and I like the way the gentleman framed that, uh, which I'm terrible with names, so I've already forgotten his name. Tristan, probably. Tristan. You're thinking of. I like the way he framed it, which is he said, look, Saturday morning cartoons used to be a protected time. We used to have Saturday morning cartoons for kids and you didn't have to see adult content. You just got to see kids' content. And that was a, a, a world. And, and he was kind of superimposing this onto social media and TikTok, et cetera, which is filled with lots of content, a lot of which is not appropriate for Saturday morning type viewing. Um, and I, I, the way I read that is what he was really asking for are some uh, rules of conduct or play where they could put squares around, like you have YouTube kids now and things like that. You could put, um, you know, permissioning type content around it. And ultimately, um, some of that would have to be about children. Some of them have to be about protecting vulnerable members of society. Mm. Some of them would have to be about to what extent do you use um, highly um, addictive uh, sort of uh, algorithms uh, to essentially 
make your customers addicted to your product. Yeah. The same way that a tobacco and alcohol company would. So whose um, role is that? That's the the main question I think is like as you're looking at it and you're starting to figure out okay, we need to put some governance on this or we need to carve out this safe space for these different uh, people or personas. And not just in social media, but in any company, when they're starting to go for this idea and they're starting to realize, all right, I need to be more conscientious, is this the CEO's job? And how can they make that connection with the boots on the ground? So my, I suppose my point of view on this is you know, probably not a very satisfactory answer, but the way I've thought about this problem has been very much around the composition of algorithms and algorithmic bias. This idea that when we create algorithms that sort through a certain critical number of people's information, so if we're creating credit scores for more than 20,000 or 50,000 people in the world, then we are essentially a systematic uh, risk to that society because we could systematically bias against or for certain uh, mm. people and so on. I would say that every data scientist or every person who's creating these algorithms has to get societal level understanding of what their impact is likely to be. So I, I would love to say it's a centralized person, a head of risk or a chief CEO and so on. But I would probably more likely lean toward the idea that it's very much a cultural element because that CRO has no chance of picking up every possible bias, code, implication, second, third order effect that their products or their code could have. And really, you can have ethical, if the company is big enough, you can have a kind of causality group within these that whose job it is is to independently review these algorithms, and they should have that for auditability anyway. Part of that review process could actually go to um, ethical considerations. Uh, and the way I think about this, I think there will be companies that, like S&Ps and Moody's, will emerge to come and rate algorithms and provide certification external certification for algorithms and, and societal impact and so on. In fact, that's a company that I started uh, about a year ago, but I oh, put really? a hold uh, <laughs> for them, yeah. Um, and I think, I think what, I, what I like about this is that ultimately, um, you know, it, it is a matter of culture. It, it's a matter of people being very aware that when you're playing with these type of hyperscalable companies and systems like algorithms, your voice or your will through the mechanism of a algorithm is translated into hundreds of thousands of people. Mm. And the ownership of that impact is still you because it's still your voice. It is your, an algorithm is a manifestation of your will. Uh, I mean, outside of highly opaque, you know, deep learning models where you literally put in data, close your eyes, push go, and then hope for the best. <laughs> Almost everything else is a manifestation of you. Um, into an algorithm, into an outcome. And you own that. And you own it as a company, you own it as an individual and so on. When we start to buy and sell algorithms from one another, this will start to get blurry very quickly because you might have written an algorithm that I'll rent and then I'll make some changes to and I'll rent again. And there'll be a question of how did that bias get in here and who owns that bias? Was it you that created it? Was it the thing that I put on that top lineage, of it? So yeah. Lineage is going to be really interesting because I think we're very close now to this idea of algorithms trading and, and uh, yeah. you know, markets for algorithms where we are buying and selling them and so on. Yeah, the market. Um, but ultimately, whoever puts them into the world and releases them into people's lives, I think, is where the box stops. So even if there's, it's a bit like if I'm a car manufacturer, if I'm Ford, if I release a car that falls apart because of you know three screws and four tail lights and you know electrical wire. Um, I'm on the hook because I'm forward. I'm the last person to push this together into product and release it into the market. I think yeah. the same kind of logic would apply to an algorithm, which means all the people that are working to create it have to be responsible, thoughtful, careful. And having an independent or an, an external oversight company that certifies and, and creates transparency and creates some limits as well to their own understanding of the algorithm to say things like, look, we have created this algorithm that has no racial and gender bias, um, but does use postcode. Hmm. And if postcodes lines up with racial bias, then guess what? We have created a racial bias algorithm. Well, we didn't intend to, but we did. And in that case, 
um, I, I, the legal frameworks were probably set whether that company should rethink that algorithm or just disclose the fact that this is, you know, the kinds of bias they could, they, they could carry potentially. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting thought too, is just instead of fixing it to try and weed out all of the bias, they just disclose it and say, hey, if you're going to use this, you may want to know that it has X, Y, and Z biases. Like, so you know the, the dangers of things. If you ever listen to an American ad, you know when the, they, they yeah. advertise drugs and medicine and they have that really long, really fast thing at the end? This, this Side drug effects could, include. Exactly. This drug could cause you to lose your sight, hearing, you know, movement of limbs, uh, may, may cause dyslexia and diarrhea. But anyway, <laughs> fun. It'll get rid of your stomach ache, at least. So. Well, it'll get rid of something, that's for sure. Um, but look, it, it, this is a, a fascinating topic because... I mean, uh, the European Union, I think, has taken some phenomenal steps in this space and, and they've really been the leader in terms of trying to articulate what are principles and so on. I think what I find most challenging about this topic is typically you have three kinds of people in a room talking about this subject. Mm. You have a technical specialist who says, I run algorithms, I understand how to put them together and I understand how to mechanically change biases and so on. Even if that's not quite the right thing to do, I kind of understand the trade-offs between biases. Number two is a philosopher that says, what is ethics? What is morality? You know, what is equality? And so on. Let's think about this in a societal context. And then you have a third lawyer who sits there going, yeah, but who's responsible and who pays for that damage and who ultimately is on the hook for this? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have a government person who I think is ideally in the room to, because they care about society in the big picture, but they're probably not trained in either one of those or three fields rather. Mm-hmm. They're just there because it feels like government should be in this conversation because they have the most amount of data and social responsibility. Yeah. Um, but we've yet to find an animal that, that can kind of circumvent or go bridge these different disciplines in, in a language that's common. Oh, such a great point. Wow. I want to thank you for coming on here. I am very conscientious of your time and that we've already gone over. And so whoever you had next on the calendar is probably waiting for you. (laughs) Not as important. Really, this has been so cool. I I hope that we can do a second one because it feels like we're just getting started right now. And this is something that is, is absolutely, it's brilliant to talk to you about. I love seeing your point of view and hearing your insights on this because there are so many takeaways from this short conversation. So I want to thank you, Michael. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for your time.